0: are listening to the historical bookworm show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational
1: fiction join your hosts kylie and darcy for author interviews a pinch of the past and special bookworm reviews hi this is
2: kylie woodley and darcy fournier Today's guest is a best-selling, Christie award-winning author who has long claimed that words are the air she breathes. When not writing fiction, she's homeschooling her two kids, editing, designing book covers, and pretending her house will clean itself. She is the author of a slew of historical novels that span several continents and thousands of years. Spies, war, and mayhem always seem to find their way into her books to offset her real life, which is blessedly ordinary. Rosanna M. White, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show.
3: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: We're so glad to have you back. It's been a little while since we've chatted. You were on the show in May of 2021 to promote The Nature of a Lady, book one in the Secrets of the Isles series. And now you're here to tell us a little about book three, Worthy of Legend, which I love that title, by the way. Before we get into all that, how are you doing and how was your summer?
3: Oh my goodness, my summer was pretty crazy. So I, for some reason, thought it would be a great idea to write four books in seven months. And we are approaching the deadline for the fourth one of those. So I'm just a little brain dead <laughs> at the moment. It has been a crazy <laughs> summer. July, we were traveling all month to different conferences. So yeah, I'm, I am ready for vacation. <laughs>
2: Wow. You definitely sound like you have a lot on your plate. Four books in seven months. That's amazing.
3: Or insane. Insane may be a
0: better (laughs) word. We'll see. (laughs) Jury's still out on that. You can get back to it. Yeah.
2: So how do you juggle all of your responsibilities as a mother, writer, editor, cover designer, and business owner?
3: Well, sometimes not very well, but in general, I just, I prioritize and I delegate and I just have my list of things that I do at certain times of days and on certain days. And if at all possible, I don't deviate from that. So I protect the time of each individual task.
0: In other words, you're disciplined, which is like an amazing thing for a writer. I aspire to be that. I haven't made it yet.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I discovered actually, while still in college, that if I was not disciplined, no one would be disciplined for me
2: when it comes to writing. So yeah,
0: good way to look at it.
2: Well, I might have to take notes here. I have two jobs in the podcast and I'm writing. I have three kids (laughs) and keeping up with sports and church. And it's yeah, I think having certain duties and delegations would be really good. (laughs)
3: Yeah, it's crucial, really, if you want to juggle everything.
2: So of all the hats that you don in business and home life, which do you think comes the easiest with your talents? And which is the most challenging?
3: So anything business is the most challenging for me or like technical is not where I shine but I love the creative things. Writing is my biggest passion of course and then cover design is so much fun cuz it's a way to be creative when I don't have the focus or the time for in-depth writing. I am learning though to take some real joy from the things that involve readers and and interacting with readers and providing new things for them to interact with that aren't just directly my books. So that's been actually a lot of fun to learn. We call it marketing, but that feels like a a bad word to a lot of writers. So I try to look at it as engaging with my readers, which is so much more fun to think of it that way.
2: Yes, definitely more personal. I try to have that approach with everything that I do for the podcast with our social media. I'm like, am I putting this out there because I need Someone to see it, or is this cool? Do I, is this awesome? Do I want to share when I go to a historical landmark and putting that out there? It's just so much more personal. And I think people really connect more that way, anyway. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. They can tell if you're serving them or trying to sell something to them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us, or perhaps something God has laid on your heart that you'd like to share with your readers?
3: Well, this is actually one of my first interviews f- in this round. Basically, nothing has been talked about lately, but I think something that I have been thinking about a lot in recent months is really what it means to to be in a community of faith and what it means to be not just a Christian, but a member of the church, like the great church, right, that that operates throughout time and across generations and across continents and is so much bigger than any one person. I think the first part of my life was a lot about developing my individual faith. And that's been invaluable, of course, but trying to then expand outside of me in my understanding and think, okay, what am I giving? What am I learning? How am I a part of the body? So that's what I've been exploring a lot with my writing recently. And just with all the different things I've been doing really is how can I be a more vibrant part of of the church and of the community?
0: That's a really cool one because I think for me, I've been a lot in the personal development of my walk. But when you think about how, like you said, the church spans generations, literally thousands of years, and it's it involves us here now, it's the legacy that's been passed on to us. It's what we're going to be passing on to the believers who come after us. It's amazing to think that we get to play a part in that.
3: Yes. So amazing that there is this thing called the church that has survived since the days of Christ that isn't any one person, but it's all the people. So it's just, it's, it is such a cool legacy to be a part of.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and take a moment to talk about your latest release worthy of legend. So this is book three in the Secrets of the Isle series, as we mentioned, and I will go ahead and read the blurb. After a summer of successful pirate treasure hunting, Lady Emily Schofield and her friends must hide the unprecedented discoveries they've made, thanks to the betrayal of her own family. Horrified by her brother, who will stop at nothing to prove himself to their greedy father, Emily is forced to take a stand against her family, even when it means being cut off entirely. Bram Sinclair, Earl of Telford, is fascinated with tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, an interest he's kept mostly hidden for the last decade. But when a diary is unearthed on the islands that could lead to a secret artifact, Bram is the only one able to piece the legends together. As Bram and Emily seek out the whereabouts of the hidden artifact, they must dodge her family and a team of archaeologists. In a race against time, it is up to them to decide what makes a hero worthy of legend. Is it fighting valiantly to claim the treasure or sacrificing everything in the name of selfless love?
2: Now, for readers who are unfamiliar with this series, can you tell us a little about it and what connection they have between the three books?
3: Sure, absolutely. So the whole series is set on an island chain in 1906. It's in the Isles of Scilly, which are about 25 miles off the coast of Cornwall. They are the warmest part of England, subtropical climate, absolutely beautiful, which is why I set a series there. I literally just went hunting for beautiful islands in England and went, oh, those look nice. Let's go there. (laughs) So I needed something light and fun. So I was like, let's do a treasure hunt series that would be a blast. So that's kind of where this whole series came from. So Throughout the series, we have a group of friends who ca- grows a bit as the series goes on. We have new characters coming in with each book, and they are working together to find a pirate treasure. There, was, there were many pirates, actually, that used the Isles of Scilly as a base of operations over the years because it's very conveniently positioned. The most famous is John Mucknell, who was actually a pirate admiral. He controlled a pirate fleet <laughs> during the English Civil War. So he was officially working for the crown, but he was really a pirate. It was really cool. So he also had a pirate prince working with him, who was also a member of the royal family, but was pirating. So cool there. That one came in in book two. So this pirate took so much loot over the years, and we don't really know what happened to it all. And so there have been these theories that, hey, maybe he buried it in the Isles of Scilly. They have, of course, never actually found this treasure, but hey, why not, right? Why not? So I was setting the whole series around this, and then I actually decided for book three, I needed to up the ante. I already had this full archaeological dig going on to unearth things. And I was like, all right, I need a surprise. I need something that is not actually from John Mucknell. So instead, I placed a treasure there that his wife had found and had reburied. So that's where the legends of King Arthur come in. And I figured, let's go big, right? Like, if we're talking about hidden artifacts, what could be bigger for an English family than something that goes back to King Arthur? So that's what I decided to put into book three. And each story in the series does stand on its own. They're each searching for their own treasure. They have a different couple that are the main characters. But they are also involved with each other throughout. So you'll get the most out of the series if you read them in order, but you can also read them independently and enjoy each one for the fun and the romance and the treasure hunt on its own.
0: Oh my gosh, this just sounds so much fun.
3: (laughs) That's what I was going for. Pure fun. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it just sounds amazing. So, and Lady Emily Schofield, she's brave and independent. But what did you find the most challenging, if anything, about writing her character?
3: Well, uh, okay, that's actually the funny thing. She ends up brave and independent, but she is anything but brave and independent when we meet her in the first couple books. And even in the beginning of this one, she is from a very dominating family who has dictated her every move. And all her life has been drilled into her. You have to do this to be a good Schofield. And a good Schofield would do this or that or not this or not that. So she has never taken an independent step in her life until this summer. And when she does and stands up for something, it literally costs her everything. She's totally cut off from the rest of her family, monetarily, emotionally, everything. So she is at a loss. She doesn't know what to do. She just knows that giving in to them when they are doing things that she knows is wrong is not actually honoring them. So throughout the book, the big challenge that she, endures and which I got to go through writing her, was trying to figure out what you do when you're called to love people, especially your own family, who don't deserve it. Like These are not nice people. They don't behave in good ways. They're doing sinful things and they're unrepentant about it. How do you deal with that? How do you love them? How do you show them a better way? And it's a challenge for her. And frankly, it was interesting to try to explore how to selflessly love people who are undeserving of it.
0: Wow. That is actually a really deep topic to discuss, especially with your family, because you do seek their approval. It's just instinctive in you. But to come to the point of learning that yes, to honor them can't be engaging in these behaviors that while they uphold are actually dishonoring to humans in general and to God. You can't honor your family by dishonoring God and finding the courage to, yeah, break from that or if you're forced to break from that to still live your life that's actually really huge so amongst all this crazy treasure hunting she has quite a journey doesn't she
3: yeah yeah she really does especially with her brother because she realizes at one point she only ever wanted him to be different because of how it would affect her but she has to get to the place where she wants him to be different because that's the only way he will be saved and it's this not actually, not so subtle difference, but that I think is hard for us to really grasp. That How often are we praying that people will stop instead of praying that people will truly be changed? And we tend to make it all about us, so she has to grapple with that one, too.
0: Exactly. We, it can be so easy to focus on, you know, well, we want them to change for our benefit, but actually, yeah, it's for them, too. Yep. So, Bram Sinclair is fascinated by ancient legends and the tales of King Arthur, which, of course, I think that's super cool. I'm, my head is, lives about half its life in the Middle Ages. So, Camelot, Guinevere, King Arthur, great stuff. But these legends have been extensively explored. There are tons of stories and theories about how things worked, about who was real, who wasn't real. So, as you were researching, did you discover something that completely surprised you?
3: I actually know very little about King Arthur. So I, I started from scratch researching for this. So I was just fascinated even by how there's, there are the core legends and then there are all these extraneous ones and the main knights of the round table, but there could be hundreds of knights of the round table. And just at how fractured the legend really is and how it's been adopted by the French and the English and all these different groups even. So I just decided to lean into that and to play with it and to basically create my own little branch of the legend that does not exist for real and say, ah, they found something new that redefines part of the legend, which is basically my way of saying, yeah, I'm not going to try to figure out what's actually right. I'm just going to make it all up. (laughs)
0: Because why not? Like you say, it is very fractured and there are historians who have dug into it and they can say, yeah, we're pretty sure this is accurate and we're pretty sure this is not accurate. But there are so many different adaptations of the story almost. It's almost like a fairy tale that's just got so many different versions. So that's actually super fun. You're following on in the tradition of generations. Just add something to it. Let's go. That's right. Absolutely.
2: It's good storytelling. (laughs) So I'm curious with looking into King Arthur and the legends and whatnot, in writing this book, Did your research at all influence the start of this new imprint, uh, White Crown Publishing? (laughs) Actually, it it all just coalesced
3: in a kind of fun way. So we'd been toying with the idea of a royal imprint for about a year and a half. And it was because we were publishing books under our White Spark imprint that were princess stories. And they were doing really well. And it shocked my husband to no end. And he was like, princess stories? Who knew? (laughs) And we were like, every girl ever. Knew <laughs> and so um, we just kept saying you know we just need to make an imprint of royal fiction and then I mentioned it to one of our editors at a writers conference and she was like yeah and you call it White Crown and we're like. Ah. Yes. Yes, who knew? So it happened. I think it was largely because I had that on my brain that I've then started putting more of it into my stories. It was not the other way around. It wasn't my stories that inspired the imprint. It was the imprint that inspired me to go, ooh,
0: royals. Yes. Let's put more royals into everything. I like it. I like it. So what kind of writerly things are you doing in the future? You have written four books in seven months or are closing in on that fourth one. (laughs) So you you probably have a pretty full publishing schedule and everything coming up.
3: Yes, yes, I do. So I have this series wrapping up from Bethany House and then I have a time slip that's coming out in January... February, January, February, somewhere in there, called Yesterday's Tides, which I am super excited about. It takes place in Ocracoke during World War One and World War II. Then I have a couple books coming out from guideposts that are direct-to-reader things. The one I'm working on now is a biblical fiction for their Extraordinary Women of the Bible series, and then I'm also participating in a mystery series. So that's two of the four books. And then I also have a new series starting with Bethany House next summer called The Imposters, and That one is about an aristocratic brother and sister who uh, end up on the brink of bankruptcy when their father dies because he had just squandered all their money on entertainments. So they had a kind of charm childhood of like circus performers and theater groups and acrobats always coming through, but it spent all their money. (laughs) So they're now using the skills they learned from all these entertainers to spy on the elite. So it's super fun.
0: Oh, wow. So not only are you writing four different books, you're writing in all kinds of different genres. So lots of fun stuff. (laughs) At least you can't get bored. No, there's
2: no boredom around here. I would love to be bored for a day. Well, Rosanna, thank you so much for coming on the show. And for our listeners, Rosanna has been so gracious to offer a copy of Worthy of Legend, book three in the Secrets of the Isle series. All you have to do to enter to win is go to our website, historicalbookworm.com and go to the giveaways pages and it'll be there at the top or just check the show notes for this episode. Now, Rosanna, how can our listeners connect with you? You can find me on all
3: the main social media sites at Rosanna M. White. You can go to my website, rosannamwhite.com. I certainly encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. That is front and center on every page. You can find that anywhere. When you do, you'll get a bonus story, actually, in the Secrets of the Isles series. It's a bonus chapter about the elder brother of the first hero, and yeah, if you sign up for my newsletter, you will get an email from me every week where I give you the rundown of all the stuff I've done that week. So you get all the posts, all the blogs, all the sales, anything going on there.
0: Now for a pinch of the past.
2: For today's pinch of the past, we have a special surprise. Liz Tolsma. The host from Christian Historical Fiction Talk is presenting our Pinch of the Past. Liz?
1: Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So today's Pinch of the Past is Spanish missions at the time of the Texan Revolution.
0: Oh, this sounds interesting. Kind of a little-known piece of history. I feel like it gets skimmed over in history books. So let's see what you got.
1: Sure. Sure. And I didn't know much about this before I wrote my book centered around this. So I learned a lot when I traveled to San Antonio to find out about this. So first of all, the missions were really small towns. They had thick walls that protected the people inside, mainly from hostile Indian tribes. The missions were made up of Mexicans. Tejanos, which were people of Mexican descent born in Texas, and friendly Indians looking for protection from warring Indian
0: tribes. Oh, interesting. No, I didn't know that. I didn't
1: either. Yeah, so they really had everything that they would need within those walls. I was surprised when I went there by actually how large that they were. In addition to a church, which was a central part of the mission. they would have a water source, a granary, a munitions area, basically everything they needed to withstand a siege.
0: Wow, so almost like the castles in Europe they were they had everything they needed to last out for a long enough period of time
2: yeah, to be self sufficient
1: exactly, yes so that I like that comparison. I had never thought of it before that way, but you're right. Just like the castles in Europe, that's what their whole purpose was.
2: Yeah, leave it to a medieval author, Darcy. <laughs> I
1: can't help it. My brain goes there. <laughs> so, along the walls, there were apartments for families. Each wall, then, each section of apartments had its own well and had an outdoor. Adobe oven. And they were very small rooms and small apartments because they spent a lot of their time outside. Oh, wow. So it was really just sleeping quarters? Pretty much, yes. So then moving on specifically to the Alamo and some very interesting facts about the Alamo. What we think of the Alamo today is actually a very small part of what the Mission de San Antonio was In 1836, what we know today is the church and some of the barracks that are remaining. Everything else is gone, and a lot of it has been absorbed by the city of San Antonio.
2: Okay, now I knew that like parts of it had been destroyed with all the conflict and battling, but were there like historical remnants that were actually after the fact, like? maybe decades or centuries later, well, not centuries, (laughs) decades later, that were destroyed as, as part of the city growing?
1: I think a lot of it was destroyed over the years. It was already over 100 years old in 1836 when the battle took place, and it was already in disrepair and falling apart, which was part of the problem with defending it. And so a lot of it, then after the battle was gone they tried to rebuild it and use it for different things but over the years it just fell into disrepair until it was preserved as a historic site
0: interesting it just it never really it they, so they did try to use it for different things after the whole conflict there but it just it never really came back to life fully
1: exactly yes afterwards it was just that was pretty much the end of it And you can walk around San Antonio and you can see on the sidewalks where they've marked where the corners of the original mission were.
2: Oh, wow. Well, that's really neat. And it looks like the grounds were fairly extensive. Like all we have is the chapel to look at now. But to house so many people and you got to think they had animals and goats or cattle and then on top of like any military horses that were there.
1: Exactly. So it was not just the families and the people there seeking refuge and safety, but it was also military headquarters. So the large open area in the middle of the mission would be parade grounds and military training grounds, as well as gathering spots for the people. So it served a multi-purpose area.
0: Mm -hmm. Very
2: cool.
1: Another very interesting fact about the Alamo is we think that everybody in the Alamo died. And it's true that all of the fighting men perished there, but there were survivors of the Alamo. There were Tejano women and children, and there was one white woman and her daughter, and one slave that we know of that survived the Alamo. Interesting.
2: I wonder, did they survive like that final conflict or were they allowed to pass safely um, before that final conflict ensued?
1: No, they were inside of the mission during the battle. Oh, my. Yes, they witnessed the horrors that were going on around them. They went into the church and hid in a side room in the one of the chapels off the main church, and that's where they hid. And after the battle, then Santa Anna came in there and found them. And the story goes that he allowed the women and children to live and looked at the slave that was in there with them and said, oh, he's not worth killing.
0: So that's how
1: he's deprived.
0: Wow. That's sad. So were they taken back to Mexico or were they released to find their own way as best they could in the Texas countryside?
1: What Santa Ana did was give each of the women a blanket and a little bit of money and told them to go find Sam Houston and tell Houston that he was coming for him. And that's exactly what they did. They left the Alamo and several days later, they met up with Sam Houston and his forces who were coming to reinforce the troops at the Alamo. Obviously they were far too late, but they did prepare Sam Houston and let him know that Santa Anna was on his way.
2: And I'll bet just seeing them would probably be a good, like powerful motivator for the men who were coming to fight.
1: Yeah. All the, Women and the stories that they told, and what they had witnessed, and telling that people like Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett, and, and they were all dead. All those really famous men that were in the fort were all dead. And in Santa Anna and his troops, after the battle, collected all of the bodies and burned them, and the ashes were buried in a nearby church. And that was because Santa Ana said he wanted history to never remember their names. But today there is a monument that stands outside of the Alamo, and it's etched with as many names as we know. We don't know if we know every man who was in there, but as many as we know, their names are etched there, so their names were not forgotten
0: interesting how it was an act of war and everything, but it was kind of an act of pride to, be, to go that far as a conqueror. It's interesting that there were enough people who were determined to remember those who died there.
1: Yeah, Santa Ana was very full of himself, I guess is a good way to say it, a very prideful man. And so that history does remember the names. I just thought that was really neat and very special.
0: It is. It is.
2: I'm really curious to see how these historical events are intertwined in your book. I haven't read anything about it. When is it coming out?
1: It released on May 1st, so it's been out for a little bit now.
2: Wow. How exciting. I'm going to look that up. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was a lot of fun to go there. And the book is dual timeline, so I got to do the history of the Spanish missions and the revolution and the Alamo, but also get a flavor of what San Antonio is like today. And I had never been there. I've been to Texas multiple times and I had never made it to San Antonio. So it was a lot of fun to explore.
0: Oh, Oh, that's super cool. Now writing about the Alamo is bound to be sad. So I know you can't give spoilers, but that historical timeline, does it end like pretty tragically, or is there at least a hopeful ending to it?
1: Well, I do tend to write a lot about a lot of pretty dark subject matter, but I always infuse my stories with hope. And so there's always something hopeful. There's always the Christian message in there that even when things look their bleakest, we have our hope in Christ. And I am also... A hopeless romantic. So even though this may be considered women's fiction, not true straight romance, there always is a little bit of a romance in there. So that's all I'm going to say about it. But um, you know how
0: romances have to end. So uh, yeah. okay, okay, that we'll take it absolutely. Hard hitting stories are important and meaningful, and especially so when they carry that message of hope that Christ offers.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Life is not easy. Life is not always neat and tidy. And whether it's 1836 or 2022, life is hard and bad things happen. And I just want to get across that message of that, no matter how dark the night, the morning is coming. Yes.
2: It's a good message. Well, thank you for coming on the show to present in our Pinch of the Past. I know I've looked up, it's a promise engraved is Liz's book here. That's the setting is in the Alamo. And yeah, I'm going to be reading that. I'm really excited to see that. So
1: thank you for coming on the show, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Time for our bookworm review.
2: Moondrop Miracle by Jennifer Lamont Leo, Chicago, 1928. Pampered socialite Connie Shepard lives the kind of glossy life other women read about in the society pages. Engaged to a handsome financer, she spends her days and nights in a dazzling social round. When eccentric Aunt Pearl, an amateur chemist, offers her an unusual wedding present, the formula for a home-brewed skin tonic. Connie laughs it off, but when the Great Depression flings her privileged world into chaos and rocks her marriage to the core, will Aunt Pearl's strange gift provide the key to survival for Connie and her baby? By turns heartbreaking and hope-filled, Moondrop Miracle tells the story of an extraordinary and unforgettable woman whose determination to succeed changes her life forever.
4: Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me at my website, www.authorangelabell.com. Whenever I try a new-to-me author's work, I'm always hopeful that I'll uncover a hidden gem. Dear readers, I'm pleased to report that Moondrop Miracle by Jennifer Lamont-Leo is one such gem of a book. And oh my, does it sparkle. By the final page of chapter one, I noted the glimmer of something special. The multifaceted heroine Connie drew me in right away. And her adorably eccentric Aunt Pearl completely stole my heart. Using her skilled pen, Leo lets us tag along with these endearing characters as they experience the final glory days of the Roaring Twenties and the economic crash of the Great Depression. Connie's growth and spiritual journey are beautifully developed. Toward the end, I was so engrossed in her life, friendships, and career that I could not put the book down. Seriously, y'all, this In Bed by Nine gal was up past midnight binge reading. If you love historical fiction, period dramas, or grew up admiring the Mary Kay lady with her pretty pink cosmetics, then you simply must try Moondrop Miracle.
1: You've been listening to The Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.